The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Good to be here. I appreciate you all being here. Those of you who are watching live, thanks for joining us. We're Always glad to have you. We have been, the last three weeks, I guess, studying, doing studies that deal with Israel. And we have seen that, biblically, there are two Israels. There's a physical, national Israel, which was a type, and there's a true or spiritual Israel, which was the anti-type. And we saw that the promises of God were fulfilled not in physical Israel, but in spiritual Israel, in true Israel, who is Yeshua. Now, this is such an important subject because it really destroys a prominent teaching within the church today called Christian Zionism. Zionism, if you're not familiar with it, is a political movement. It's built on the belief that the people who think they are Jewish, now I'll clarify that as we go, but they think they're Jewish, And they think they have a right to possess the land of Palestine as their own. And then we have Christian Zionism, which is essentially a Christian prophetic support for Zionism. It views the modern state of Israel as the equivalent to biblical Israel, and therefore the forerunner of the return of Yeshua. Now, the journalist and author Grace Halsell summarizes the message of Christian Zionism in this way. She says, Every act taken by Israel is orchestrated by God and should be condoned, supported, and even praised by the rest of us. This is a, this is a scary view, people, because they just blindly they see Israel as the people of God and therefore whatever Israel does, it's okay, it's right, no matter who they murder, no matter who they kill, it's okay because they're the people of God. Now, dispensational Christian Zionism is the prominent form, all right? And it's pervasive within mainline evangelical and charismatic and independent megachurches. Tens of thousands of churches have committed Theirself to a belief of the importance of standing with Israel, blessing the Jewish people. And their go-to verse is Genesis 12.3, all right, that says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And they would say here, he who dishonors you I will curse. So the Christian Zionists would take this verse and apply it to the modern state of Israel. Yeah, why? This verse is, this is in Genesis. This is talking to Abram. He's not even talking to the nation Israel. He's talking to Abram. But they take this. And so they will say, if you don't want to be cursed by God, you better support Israel. And I want to tell you that the New Testament says the exact opposite. The New Testament says, if you support Israel you will be disciplined by God. Now, I'll explain that as we go, but hang on to that thought, all right? Now, Christian Zionism teaches that God's prophetic calendar is tied to modern-day Israel. And this is wrong. God is through with the nation Israel. We've been talking about this. Yahweh shut down Old Covenant Israel in August of AD 70 when He destroyed the temple and the city using the Roman army. Christian Zionism has robbed millions of 21st century American Christians, uh, I think, of one of the most precious and vital beliefs of historical Christian teaching, namely that the church is the true Israel of God, and the only Israel through which God's eternal purpose is consummated. Well, like I said, we've been talking the last three weeks about Israel, so I thought, well, let's talk at least about the Jew one time, or when you, know, when you hear about Israel, you think of Jews. So today we're going to look at who is a biblical Jew? Who fits that category? Now, what do you think of when you hear the word Jew? Some may think of someone who's cheap or frugal, right? I mean, that's a moniker that's been given to the Jews. 
Some may think, oh, that's those who killed Christ. Some may think of those who wear funny little black hats and curly little sideburns or something like that, all right? So what comes to your mind when you hear the word Jew? Well, how would the Jews describe themselves? That's a good question, right? Let's, so according to the website, Judaism 101, it says this, A Jew is any person whose mother was a Jew or any person who has gone through the formal process of conversion to Judaism. So if your mother was a Jew, that's all you're good. Or if you did a conversion, you went through it. Now, they go on to say this. It is important to note that being a Jew has nothing to do with what you believe or what you do. <laughs> nothing to do with what you believe or what you do. Now, they define that. They go, a person born to non-Jewish parents who has not undergone the formal process of conversion but who believes everything that Orthodox Jews believe and observe, and observes every law and custom of Judaism, is still a non-Jew, even in the eyes of the most liberal movements of Judaism. And a person born to a Jewish mother who is an atheist and never practices the Jewish religion is still a Jew, even in the eyes of the ultra-Orthodox. Now, that gives you a little bit of insight into their, okay. <laughs> Basically, they're saying their definition, the Jews, people who call themselves Jews now, their definition of themselves has nothing to do with the Bible or God. And I would agree with that definition as far as Jews today. But what about the Jews of the Bible? What does the Scripture say about who is a Jew? And that's what we want to look at this morning. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 2, 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Now, he says if here, and this is a first-class condition, meaning since. For since, you bear the name Jew. You call yourself a Jew. And the you here is a second-person singular, which indicates he's talking to the nation, not to an individual. The name Jew contrasts with Greek and calls attention to nationality. The Jews gloried in being members of God's chosen nation, and they should have. But he says, you call yourself a Jew. You're of the nation of Israel. You call yourself a Jew. The term Jew, and there's, boy, you use this term Jew and on the Internet, and you'll get all kinds of people, oh, they're not Jews. That's not even a correct title and all this. The term Jews was first used in the Babylonian captivity. First time it really came about. The Babylonians called them Jews because they were from the land of Judah. How about that? That's interesting, right? <clears throat> At the time of the writing of the New Testament, during the Roman kingdom, there were only two tribes in the Palestinian area, Judah and Benjamin. Now, there were certain individuals from other tribes, but for the most part, it was only those two tribes. And it was those tribes who were really called Jews. Now, we just use the term for anybody who says they're a Jew now, but... A Jew, it was a title of honor, really. It designated them as the special people of God. The word even came from a Hebrew root meaning praised. And they were named praised because of the tremendous privilege that they had. Now, in Paul's time, the Jew is no longer really seeing his Jewishness as a revelation of God's goodness and God's grace. He's seeing it as an indicator of his own superiority. And the Jew believed that everyone was destined for judgment except them. Everybody. It would not be any special goodness that kept him immune from the wrath of God, but simply the fact that he was a Jew, he was safe from the wrath of God. Everybody else was under the wrath. Now Paul says, you rely on the law. If there's one thing the Jew prided himself on, it was the possession of the law of God. It was delivered to Jews through Jews. It had been preserved and passed down by Jews. Every Jewish boy would have been trained up in the law. They would have known what the Bible says. I mean, they just focused on that for the first 12 years of their life. It was memory, 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 memorizing the Torah. They were catechized in that. This did distinguish the Jews from other people. God had chosen them out of all the nations and deposited His law with them so they would bear testimony to the nations concerning their Creator. In Romans 3, Paul asks, 
then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, Jew is used here, just as it was in 2.17, of the national physical ethnic Jews. Not a true Jew. He's talking about ethnic Jews here. So the question is, what, what's the advantage of being an ethnic Jew? What's the advantage of being from Israel? These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They received the covenant promises. They were delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand. They inherited the promised land by God's mighty power. They were the people of King David and the prophets. Surely this would count for something. And Paul answers the question, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And the one reason Paul gives when they ask, what's the advantage of Jew? Paul's main focus is, hey, they had the word of God. Now, oracles of God here, as people give it different interpretations, but I think it seems best to translate it as the word of God. They had God's word. God gave them his law. No other nation had received the revelation of God. The Lord overlooked the educated Egyptians and Greeks, the cultured Babylonians and Phoenicians. On the mountain, God revealed himself to Israel, not only on the tablets of stone, but also in the divine voice coming from the mountain that burned with fire and covered with smoke. The Syrians, the Amorites, the Amalekites, they had no such advantage. None of the other nations had the word of God. Look at Nehemiah 8.1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. Now notice that it is the book of law of Moses which the Lord commanded or gave to Israel. The word commanded here is sava, which means to command, to charge, to give orders. These were given to Israel, to the Jews. And you would have thought that they would have absolutely cherished that. But as you read the Tanakh, you find there were times in their history they couldn't even find the Scriptures. They didn't even know where it was. And all of a sudden, somebody would be cleaning out something or doing some renovation. Look what we found, the Scriptures. And they would, oh, that's cool. Let's read them. Let's see what they have to say. This is the Jewish nation that God entrusted His Word to. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2 about the Jews. Now, what Paul is doing here and what we have to understand he is redefining Judaism. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right, so he's saying no one is a Jew if they're outward, just outwardly a Jew. He's basically saying being a racial descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a Jew. This, again, is what we saw in Romans 9, 6. There were two Israels. There were two types of Jews. There was an ethnic Jew, and then there was a true spiritual Jew. Paul says even that circumcision is not outward and physical. Now, that's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? Nor is circumcision outward and physical. That's what it was. It was a physical, it was a surgery. He says, no, it's not outward. Now, what we have to understand here is Judaism and circumcision were intimately connected. All right? The Jews believed that they alone were the people of God. Remember, for 1,600 years, God dealt solely with the Jewish nation. If you wanted to come to God... You had to come through Judaism. They believed that they maintained a covenant relationship with God that secured their relationship. Now, the proof of their identity, the proof of their belonging was a mark. They bore a mark as the children of Abraham naturally, which they thought affirmed their right to be called the children of God supernaturally. The Jews held on to that mark, and by it they assumed that they were secure with God. That mark is called circumcision. To the Jews of Yeshua's day and Paul's day, circumcision not only distinguished them from Gentiles, but it served as their get-out-of-the-wrath-of-God-free card. All right, As long as they were circumcised, they are good. If you think I'm exaggerating here, let me give you some quotes from the rabbis 
who taught this in that era. Uh, Rabbi Levi says, In the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance of Gehenna. Now, they use Gehenna here in a way that I don't think is even biblical, all right? They use it to refer to what people call hell, all right? But in the scriptures, Gehenna is a reference to national judgment, pretty much focusing on AD 70, all right? But just so you understand that, they, they, he's using it here as hell. All right, so Abraham is sitting at the entrance to hell, and he's permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. You can't get in if you've been circumcised. What then will he do to those who have sinned very much? In other words, if you're really bad, what happens? He will remove the foreskin from babies who died before circumcision and set it upon them, the sinners, and then let them descend into Gehenna. Now, how crazy is that? (laughs) Okay, you can't even get in if you've been circumcised, but if you're really messed up, they'll undo the circumcision, and then you can go to hell. So that's their, I mean, this is their thinking. Now, the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish writings, and today the Talmud is much more prominent in Judaism than the Torah, okay? They're not so focused on the Bible, they're more focused on the Talmud. But it's a collection of Jewish writings that the Jews wrongly came to hold more than sacred scripture. The Talmud said this, the commandment of circumcision is more important than all the injunctions of scripture. Now that shows the value they placed on circumcision. They believed that a Jew, if a Jew was so vile, so evil, that he had to be sent to hell before he could get there, some taught that the angels sat at the gate and they removed the circumcision. The most important thing a Jew could do to secure his relationship with God was to be circumcised. Now, the English word circumcision comes from the Latin word, which means to cut around. It describes the origin of biblical reference to a surgery that was performed on little boys and often adult males. The simple surgery removes the foreskin from the male organ. Now, where did the idea of circumcision come from? They got it from God. God told him to do this, right? He established a practice. We've been looking at the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about Genesis 12. Yahweh promises to make Abram a great nation. In chapter 15, we see the covenant that is inaugurated between God and Abraham. And God alone walks through the slain pieces, telling them, this covenant's on me. I'll take care of this. Well, in chapter 17, God gives Abraham a symbol of the covenant. So he won't forget the promises made. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this is a sign Of the covenant, he goes on, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, to be cut off here means to be put to death or physically separated from the people of God. He was a physical Jew, but if he was uncircumcised, he was cut off and he had no right to worship. If you can't worship God, you're spiritually dead. So they were considered dead. They were put out. Look at Exodus 12, 48 and 49. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would like to keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat it. Okay, you can't partake of the Passover if you're not circumcised. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. 
All right, so every Israelite was commanded to do this. They had to be circumcised if they wanted to partake of the Passover. So strangers, Gentiles for the main purpose there, could participate, but only after they were circumcised. Now, we'll find that there's not a lot of commands for circumcision in the Bible because the people did it. They were good at doing the outward things, all right? Circumcision was to be much more than just an outward sign. <clears throat> it was to be an outward sign of an inward reality, but they lost the true meaning and they just kept the sign. They missed the spiritual aspect because all they focused on was the physical. But the physical was to be a sign of the true and spiritual circumcision. Look what Jeremiah says. He says, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Now, God is talking to men here, Jewish men, Israelites, who had been physically circumcised. And he says, circumcise your hearts. He says, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Jeremiah 9.25, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now, the ESV kind of messes this up. I mean, it's, it's accurate, but it, it messes up the beauty of this verse, I think. The New American says this, I will punish all those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. What is that? That violates the law of logic. The second law of logic is the law of contradiction. It cannot be A and not A at the same time. You can't be circumcised and uncircumcised at the same time, right? So something, what do you mean circumcised and yet uncircumcised? How can that happen? Well, they were physically circumcised. Again, back to Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is of Israel. What? What do you say? There's two different Israels. He's talking about two different things here. They were physically circumcised, but they were not spiritually circumcised of heart. And so as the ESV puts it, they were merely circumcised in the flesh. They didn't get the main thing. They missed the reality. They clung to the sign. Notice what Paul says in Romans 2. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. What do you see in this verse that's strange and almost comical? Okay, if you're physically uncircumcised, you can't be keeping the law because the law requires you to be circumcised. So you're like, we're physically uncircumcised, but keep. How do you do that? The uncircumcised man, the Gentile, who keeps the requirements of the law, this is the same idea, people, that we see in Romans 2.14. This is an important verse that most people mess up, okay, because of the punctuation. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, that no comma should be there, okay, because what it's saying here, the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, meaning they didn't have the law. No one gave them the law. It was given to Israel, not to them. But people take, they put the comma there, they don't have the law, and then they say, by nature, they do what the law requires. In other words, they just automatically do what the law requires. That's crazy. No one automatically does what the law requires. We do the opposite. Okay? Well, people take this to say we have the law of God innate in our hearts. No, we do not. Where sin is innate in our hearts. Okay? When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, so they don't have the law, they do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. How do they keep the law if they don't have the law? They're Gentile Christians, and they've trusted Christ, and therefore the requirement of the law is fulfilled in them. It's the same way the Gentile Christian who is physically uncircumcised keeps the requirements of the law by faith in Yeshua, which shows that he has truly been circumcised in heart, even though he's uncircumcised. But again, remember, to the Jew, this was everything. Physical circumcision pointed to a man's spiritual need. That was the point of it. The symbol means nothing without the reality. The Jews were circumcised in the outside, but not the inside. Circumcision is the external symbol depicting a need 
for cleansing from sin. But Israel reduced it to a tribal tattoo. They felt as long as they were circumcised, they had God's blessing. Well, Paul shatters their false confidence in circumcision. He says, for no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly. He makes a distinction between outward and inward, physical and spiritual. The outward Jew is a transgressor of Torah. Since he's not keeping Torah of the heart, which is done only by having faith in Christ. All right, let me say this. This is so important here that we understand this. All right, you had these Jewish people following the Lord for 1,600 years, serving God, following the Bible. And then now we're saying, no, what happened? Now they're not following God anymore? Yes, once the new covenant arrived, once Pentecost arrived and the Messiah showed up, had, if they had not accepted the Messiah, they were no longer the people of God. They were now covenant breakers. They were God-haters. No matter what rights they held to, according to John Eliezer anyway, look what John says in 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. Now let me ask you something. Do you think a Jew would deny that Yeshua is the Christ? Absolutely. That's why they're called Jews and not Christians. Because they deny that Yeshua is the Christ. They're liars. Then he says this. They, this is the Antichrist. That's getting a little stronger. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, is that too strong for you? He is saying if you deny that Yeshua is the Christ, which all Jews do, that you're a liar and you're an Antichrist. This would apply to all who call themselves Jews since Pentecost. He goes on and he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Well, they used to be in a relationship with God. They're not anymore. Because why? Because they're, God sent His Son and they rejected Him. They're no longer. He's repeating the idea. See, Yeshua taught this himself. In the Gospel of John, he says, he cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. In other words, if you believe in me, because you believe the Father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sent, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. If you receive him, you receive the Father. And it is false to say that Jewish people who believe in God of the Tanakh are accepted by God. They are not. They are liars and they are antichrist. Now, don't accuse me of anti-Semitism, or I'm just telling you what the Bible says, all right? About being in a relationship with God. They deny the God who is the Father and the Son. Those who deny the Son, they don't have the Father. Those who confess the Son have the Father. There is no way to the Father except through Yeshua the Christ. That's it. That's the only way. And so if they reject that, they reject Him. This seems pretty clear from this text, I would say. And yet, it's denied by one of the most popular preachers in America today, John Hagee. He's a Zionist, a Christian Zionist. Hagee teaches a dual covenant theology. In other words, Christians, you have a covenant with God. It's called the gospel. Jews, you got your own covenant. You don't need that covenant. And I'll tell you, people, I'm not trying to be rude here. I just can't help myself, okay? How ignorant are you when you say the Jews don't need the gospel? Who did Christ preach the gospel to? Who did Christ preach it to? Jews, who do the apostles preach it to? Jews, for 10 to 12 years, that's all they preached it to. Hagee says they don't need it. Well, Jesus messed up, and so did the apostles. Why send that, you know, why give the gospel to them? How stupid is he that the Jews don't need the gospel? He calls himself a friend of Israel. He is anything but their friend. Okay, In his 2007 book titled In Defense of Israel, he recounts facing down opposition from both Jews and evangelicals to found his organization, Christians United for Israel. 
And in this Christians United for Israel, they have a night to honor Israel. And here's what Hagee says about their night to honor Israel. I set forth an unbendable ground rule. Members had to agree to set aside both theological and political agendas and focus on a single issue, support for Israel. We agreed that all night to honor Israel events would be non-conversionary. So, Hagee's not interested in taking... He's a friend of Israel, he says, but he's not interested in giving them the gospel because they don't need the gospel. They have their own covenant with God, he says. This is a huge church. This guy has a huge outreach, and he's an absolute idiot. Okay? But people sit there and nod their heads and, Amen, and yeah, you go. How messed up is your theology when you say the Jews didn't need the gospel? Look at what John Eliezer says about Hagee. He says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. That's the Jew. They don't confess Christ coming in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. Pretty strong language. They're deceivers. They're deceivers and antichrist. Then he says, watch yourself. So you don't lose what you have worked for, but you get a full reward Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. That's to say, Christ, Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. To say that is not to abide in the teaching. He says he does not have God. Whoever abides in teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, any Jew, anybody comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, the teaching that Yeshua is the Christ, do not receive him into your house, Don't give him a greeting. He doesn't abide in the teachings, okay? For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We just went over this not that long ago, people. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying if you're supporting these people, you're agreeing with these people, you're giving them your greeting, you're giving them your blessing, you take part in their wicked works. Hagee is taking part in the wicked works of Israel which is Antichrist. Back to Paul. He says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. But the Spirit, not the letter, His praise is not from men, but from God. He says, So a Jew is one inwardly. In this context, he uses Jew as the people of God. Those chosen by him, those have God's, who have God's favor, those who God has called. He's using it differently here than he did in 2.17. But if you call yourself a Jew, he's using it there nationally. He's using it in 29 as an inward Jew, the Christian. The person who has trusted in Yeshua as the Messiah, whether Jew or Gentile. The point of verse 29 is that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes uncircumcised Gentiles into circumcised Jews by circumcising their hearts. Circumcision, Paul says, in its essence, is an internal change of the heart. The Jews outwardly sought to receive praise from men, but a true Jew receives praise from God. The word Jew here, again, comes from Judah, and Judah means praised. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is a play on words. He is a true Jew, for he lives up to his name. He's praised by God. That's a true Jew. In the Tanakh and in the Second Temple Jewish literature, there was this expectation that God would come by his spirit and circumcise the hearts of his people so they would keep his law. So Paul's reference to the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit would signify that the eschatological promises had now become a reality. And the nations are now circumcised in the heart, having Torah written on their hearts in fulfillment of the new covenant. The new age is dawn. The old covenant is fading away. It's about to disappear. And for the Jew to resist what God was doing through Christ by the Spirit means he is a transgressor of the Torah. Only those who trusted in Messiah would escape the coming judgment of God. He says he's a Jew inwardly and circumcision a matter of the heart. Now, what Paul is doing here is redefining what a Jew is. Paul, what Paul says here in Romans about Jews 
This is not the only place he says it. He says throughout the New Testament. And there's a, a very interesting scripture that I think you can miss if you don't understand this thing of circumcision. But look at Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Who's Paul writing to here? Who's he speaking to? Christians, okay? He says in one one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Yeshua, to all the saints. If you trusted Christ, this is for you also, okay? To all the saints. Well, he said, actually says to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. But he's talking to the church, all right? He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Yeshua, and put no confidence in the flesh. All right? He says, we are the circumcision. Now, the we here is a reference to Paul and the Philippian Christians. And again, I think what Paul says here is true of all Christians. But theologically, you've got to get the significance here. Paul, this is Paul's description of the church of Yeshua the Christ. He calls the church the circumcision. And that's significant because down through history, this title, the circumcision, had developed to be a technical designation for the children of Israel. Jews were synonymously called the circumcision. And there's many passages in Acts and some in Paul's letters that instead of saying Israel, instead of saying Jew, they just say the circumcision because that was a designation for Israel. And here he's saying we're the circumcision. Now, the New American Standard, I believe, adds the word true in there. It's not in the text, but they put it in. We are the true circumcision. So it doesn't really do any violence to the text, but that's we are the true circumcision. They're not the circumcision. We're the true circumcision. Acts 10.45, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. So the Jews here who were called the circumcision, they were astonished because the Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit. Acts 11.2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party criticized him. You know what party that is, right? They were circumcised. The Jews, the circumcised, they were upset because Paul ate with uncircumcised Gentiles. Romans 3.30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. All right, so very clearly the, the circumcised are the Jews. Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that's because you were, by what is called the circumcision, we were Jews, which is made of flesh by hands. So the term the circumcision, it's, it's used many more times, is a technical designation for Israel. Now if you understand that, then you get the significance of what Paul says here in Philippians uh, 2 and 3. Look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, Paul says these Jews, they're not circumcised. They are, in fact, mutilators. The word mutilate in verse 2 is a play on words in the Greek with the word circumcised in verse 3. All right, the words he uses here are katatome and peritome. <coughs> katatome means to mutilate, to cut off. Peritome means to cut around. Paul's saying to these Jews, you think you're the circumcision party, but you are in fact the mutilators. Because what you're doing is nothing but mutilation. Who then is the circumcision? Well, Paul tells us in 3, he says, we are the circumcision. We, the church. The true circumcision is those who worship God in the Spirit, glory in Christ Yeshua, and have no confidence in the flesh. That is everything basically against what the Jews believed, he was saying at that time, all right? They didn't worship by the Spirit. They worshiped in the flesh. They gloried in themselves. And they put all kinds of confidence in the flesh, all right? They glory in Christ. The word glory here means to boast, to pride oneself in something. As Christians, people, that's the bottom line. Our glory, our boast, our pride is in Christ and Christ alone. 
If you're glorying in yourself, you're missing the whole mark here, all right? You want to brag, you brag at Christ. Everything is about Him. All of Christianity is about Christ. If you're in Christ, if you come to faith in Christ, it is His work and you glory in Him. You don't, have you ever heard a believer say, you know, I'm glad I was smarter than my neighbor and I trusted Christ? Really? What made you so smart? How'd you get those brains? God give them to you? <clears throat> we glory in Christ. We're not glorying in the flesh. This is the church. Christians, true believers. Paul is saying that the church and only the church is the true circumcision, the true Israel, the true Jew. Now listen, Paul seems to be telling us that true circumcision is not determined by ethnic derivation, not determined by blood flowing through your veins, but rather the faith that's in your heart. It's a matter of circumcision of the heart. So who's a true Jew? Who is really a Jew? Is it ethnic background that makes you a Jew? Is it who your mother is, as Judaism says? No. Many people today still consider the Jewish people as a race. But I want you to understand this morning, there is no Jewish race today. There isn't. There's not a Jewish race. You say, well, there's a bunch of Jews over there. No, they're not. They say they're Jews, but they're not. See, after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the nation Israel, after the flesh, was scattered throughout the earth. And they lost all tribal relations. And this scattering was made immutable due to the fact that the genealogical records were destroyed with the temple. And they have no idea where they... And they intermarried and dispersed. And, you know, this is not just something I came up with and said, I just don't believe there's a Jewish race today, all right? Let me give you a few references. I don't want to do overkill here, but I want you to understand this. The Encyclopedia Britannica, 1973, says, The Jews as a race. The findings of physical anthropology show that contrary to popular view, there is no Jewish race. Anthropogenetic measurements of Jewish groups in many parts of the world indicate that they differ greatly from one another with respect to all the important physical characteristics. Encyclopedia Britannica. How about this one? The Encyclopedia Judicaea Jerusalem. 1971. It is a common assumption and one that sometimes seems ineradicable, even in the face of evidence to the contrary, that the Jews of today constitute a race, a homogeneous entity easily recognizable. From the preceding discussion of the origin of early history of the Jews, it should be clear that in the course of their formation as a people and as a nation, they had already assimilated a variety of racial strains from people moving into the general area they occupied. This had taken place by interbreeding and then by conversion to Judaism of a considerable number of communities. They go on to say, Thus, the diversity of the racial and genetic attributes of various Jewish colonies of today renders any unified racial classification of them a contradiction in terms. All right? This is the Encyclopedia Judicaea Jerusalem. All right? Despite this, many people readily accept the notion that they are a distinct race. This is probably reinforced by the fact that some Jews are recognizably different in appearance from the surrounding population. That many cannot be easily identified is overlooked, and the stereotype for some is extended to all, a not uncommon phenomena. So they're saying, ah, no, not really, not any Jews today. How about the Encyclopedia Americana, 1986, says racial and ethnic considerations. Some theorists have considered the Jews a distinct race, although this has no factual basis. In every country in which the Jews live for a considerable time, their physical traits came to approximate those of indigenous people. Hence, the Jews belong to several distinct racial types, ranging from example from fair to dark. Among the reasons for this phenomenon are voluntary or involuntary miscegenation. Everybody knows what that is, right? Miscegenation and the conversion of Gentiles to Judaism. All right, 
Miscegenation is a term which refers to reproduction by people who are considered to be members of different races. All right? Interracial marriages. That's having children. Interracial, that's what that's talking about. All right? Kohler's Encyclopedia says this. A common error and persistent modern myth is the designation of Jews as a race. And they say, oh, that's just a myth, right? This is scientifically fallacious. From the standpoint of both physical and historical tradition, investigations by anthropologists have shown that Jews are by no means uniform in physical character and that they nearly always reflect the physical and mental characteristics of the people among whom they live. So today, people, being a Jew simply means that one is of the Judistic religion or a convert to it, or else they're in this brotherhood of those who say they are. According to Jews, if your mom was a Jew, what made your mom a Jew? Her mom said she was a Jew. Her mom said she, whatever. I mean, there's no racial thing here. You just, my mom said she was a Jew, so I'm a Jew. Or I converted to it. Therefore, being a Jew today has nothing to do with race. You know, we're familiar with a number of figures who say they're Jews. Sammy Davis Jr., right? He converted Jews. Elizabeth Taylor, Tom Arnold. They became Jews by conversion. There's no racial ties there. Now, in his book, Israel in Biblical Prophecy, John Bray writes this. Many Christians do not know that the vast majority of so-called Jews in the world today are of the Ashkenazim Jews, while the remainder are the Sephardim Jews. The Ashkenazim Jews have as their background not the nation of Israel, but a country called Khazaria, which country at one time was the largest country in Europe. The settlers of Khazaria were Turks and Huns. In AD 740, King Bulan of Khazaria decided to adopt the Judaistic religion for his country. A number of Jews were already living there, so he converted to Judaism along with all his officials, and the whole nation ended up being known as a nation of Jews. In 970, Russia came in and dominated the situation, and the Khazars were scattered, many of them going down to Poland and Lithuania, where where at the dawn of our modern civilization the largest concentration of Jews were found. Today the largest percentage of so-called Jews in the world have as their background this group of people. Now this information is fully documented in detail in Bray's book Israel and Biblical Prophecy. He goes really into all this, but people just there was so much intermarrying intermingling people saying they were jews had nothing to do with jews they decided we'll be a jew our whole country will be jews everybody's jews all right funkin wagnall's new encyclopedia in 1970 says this in 1970 the israel kness adopted legislation defining a jew as one born of a jewish mother or a convert and that's where the website gets their information from. All right, this is, this is what the Jews declared is a Jew. Your mother's a Jew, you convert to Judaism. Got nothing to do with race, got nothing to do with ancestry. You just decided to, to do that. H.G. Wells, in his Outline of History, says this. There can be little doubt that the scattered Phoenicians in Spain and Africa and throughout the Mediterranean, speaking as they did a language closely akin to Hebrew, and being deprived of their authentic political rights, became proselytes to Judaism. For phases of various proselytism alternated with phases of exclusive jealousy in Jewish history. On one occasion, the Idumeans, being conquered, were all forcibly made Jews. Oh, we conquered this people, guess what? Now you're a Jew. Oh, okay, how about that? There were Arab tribes who were Jews in the time of Muhammad, and a Turkish people who were mainly Jews in South Russia in the 9th century. Judaism is indeed the reconstructed political idea of many scattered peoples, mainly Semitic. The main part of Jewry never was in Judea and had never come out of Judea. Now, hopefully you get the point, okay? There is no Jewish race today. All right, so people claiming there's the people of God, they, we got to be careful what we say to them, we got to be careful how we treat them. 
This is nothing but nonsense. And these facts, you know, you could just totally ignore all this. So I don't want to believe any of that. Well, that's your right to do that. But these facts are devastating to dispensationalism and to Christian Zionism. There's no 12 tribes today. There's no remnant of them. There's no Jewish race. A true Jew is anyone who has been circumcised in heart, who has trusted the Lord Yeshua and Him alone for their salvation. Now, let me issue a warning here. We need to be careful about your support of Israel as God's people. Now, I'm not talking politically here, okay? We're, we're not even dealing with politics, all right, whether we should side with Israel or not. I don't, I don't even care about that. That's, that's not on the picture here. I'm talking about claiming that those people over there are God's people, okay? They are not God's people. According to Scripture, they are liars. They are antichrist. And here's what I want you to understand. Most people today over in Israel who identify as Jews, the majority of them, they say, statistics say two-thirds of them are atheists. But we already knew from, you know, the website Judaism 101 that you can be a Jew and be an atheist, all right? They're atheists. But those who would call themselves Orthodox Jews, they don't follow the Torah, they follow the Talmud. That's their book. And if you were to look at the Babylonian or the Jerusalem Talmud, it says horrible things about Christ. If you read the Muslims' writing, the Quran, the Quran talks about Christ in a favorable way. You know, he's a prophet, he's this and that. Not the Talmud. In his 2007 work, Jesus in the Talmud, Peter Schaefer argues that the message conveyed in the Talmud was a bold and confident assertion of correctness of Judaism, maintaining that there is no reason to feel ashamed because we rightly executed a blasphemer and an idolater. Talking of Christ. That's what the Talmud says. The Talmud ridicules Yeshua's birth from a virgin, as maintained by the Gospels. They contest fervently the claim that Yeshua is the Messiah and the Son of God. And they subvert the Christian idea of Yeshua's resurrection by having Him punished forever in hell and making it clear that this fate awaits His followers as well who believe in this imposter. This is the Talmud. They say there's no resurrection. They insist not for Him, not for His followers. People, this is the Judaism that Christian Zionism supports. That's the Judaism. But they just think, oh man, you know, Genesis 2, 3, you know, we, we got to bless those who God, you know, we got to bless them. No. John warns Zionists today, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of Christ being the Messiah, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying a substitutionary death. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. People, instead of blessing Israel, contrary to John Hagee, we ought to be trying to get him the gospel. And there are a lot of Jews who are converting to Christianity. They're seeing the truth of the gospel. They're coming. They can be saved just like anybody else can be saved, but they have no special position unless they do come to Christ. And it would be wise for Christian Zionists to heed John's warning here. Those who bless Israel as God's people, listen, are taking part in their wicked works. They do not believe Yeshua is the Christ. And beyond that, they again, the Talmud, their main book says horrible things about our Savior. And it's, it's amazing to me that Christians can so blindly follow. And I think the reason some Christians blindly follow is, is just out of ignorance, okay? They follow people like Hagee. They follow, some, like I said, so many teacher, teachings, te- churches teaching Zionism. You know, you've got to stand with Israel. You've got to support Israel. And, and Christians just go along with that. 
The problem is we need more Bereans. We need more people who say, well, let me look at the book. Let me look in the Bible and see what the Bible says about that and, and say, what well, this doesn't line up. We need to teach people. We need to share with people the truth of what Scripture says. It, it would be sad to think that you are receiving a blessing for supporting someone when you're really putting yourself under God's judgment because He warns you, you take part in their wicked works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. I realize, Lord, there's some tough stuff here. I just pray that, you know, your people would not accept anything I say because I say it. They would be Bereans, Lord. They would not reject this, not accept this, but study this and see, if, is it so, Lord? Is this what your word teaches? Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for so many study helps, for so much information we have today. May we make ourselves available to it. May we study, Lord, to show ourselves approved unto you, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? I try. Your club, I think, is in there big time with John Hagee, too. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, I've seen the commercials. Actually, it's funny, I got one of my clients, I always hear it running in the background. You know, the commercial always comes on, I'm on the phone with her. I always hear it running in the background. Are they Zion or something? Yeah. Oh, David. Well, 700 Club. 700 Club. Pat Robertson. CBN. CBN. Yeah. And like I said, this is so typical, especially among the Charismatics, Pentecostals, you know, this. But it's it's just, in so many churches, it's just dominant. Okay. No? Yeah, that's they're waiting for a lot of things to be fulfilled. See, that's the thing. They're, they're missing out on being the Israel of God to which the promises are fulfilled right now, and they're looking for something in the future when Israel gets something. You know? And God sucks us off the planet, and then he starts going back to dealing with Israel again. It's just very <coughs> convoluted. Gary? Well, this kind of skirts... Uh... A question I asked myself the other day is, what charities can we support? I mean, we have to know. I mean, I get seven mil. I'm sure everyone does for this or that organization, and I just I don't even know who to support anymore. I don't. Most of them go in the trash. Start your Well, I mean, for like for instance, like CBN also has Operation Blessing, which mm -hmm. you know they have nothing to do with any of that. You're supporting the work they do. Not necessarily not to support a mission for Israel <laughs> from like CBN. That's different. But if you're supporting like a humanitarian organization, mm -hmm. you know, you're not. No, nobody's going to be perfect. But you know, Samaritan's Purse, Operation Blessing, you know, those type of organizations, they're doing a lot of good in the world. In the world, it's just you know. I think you have to do your research. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to look in it because even people you think are good, you know, uh, yeah. Voice of the Martyrs. Right. You know, we used to support them, and then, you know, we okay. start finding out, well, there's a lot of corruption going on in that organization. Financially, the money is, you know, and you don't want to throw your money away like that. But, you know, when you learn that stuff, then you move on, okay? And yeah. you, you know, well, you change course. You launch your charity navigator, and you look at their, their ratings, how coming are they with their financials, and then how do they actually handle the finances. And the next thing I look at is how much is the president of the company taking down? Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. You want to find out how much money is actually going yeah. to what you're giving it for. Okay, I'm going. I'm giving money to help this cause, and it's like, oh, well, 5% of our, you know, everything else is supporting the infrastructure and the CEO and everybody else that's making all this money. So you have to look into it. You have to... People, it's like anything. We have to do our homework. We have to because there's so many charlatans out there, you know, that they're just trying to get your money. You know, you've got to do some homework. You've got to look into it. Uh, and then you have to stay on top of it because things change, you know. Organizations start out good. I think Voice of the Martyrs started out good. And then it just, you know, you get corrupted and... If there's no accountability in that leadership and the money's coming in and they're like, mm, I give myself a raise, you know, and pretty soon all your pretty soon all your money's just going to support an organization and not any of the work the organization's supposed to be doing. Well, somebody complaining. Yeah. Stan? I remember a book you said years ago you recommended Blood Brothers. Yes. Blood Brothers is an excellent book. Elias Sakur, if you have not read that, it, it will open your eyes. 
Because I, the thing I like about it, Elias is not attacking the Jews. He says, we're blood brothers. You know, we're from Abraham. Okay, we're blood brothers. But he goes on and tells the story of, of, as a Palestinian and what happened in his village when the Israelis decided, hey, we're going to take this land back over. You know, and they just murdered total villages, bulldozed people right into graves. You know, I mean, it was just, it was horrific. But Israel did it, so it's right. Right? Not, not according to the Palestinians. That's what blows my mind. There's a lot of Palestinian Christians over there, but Christians would rather side with atheist Israelis than their own brothers. Because somehow Israel's got this, you know, we got to stand with them. Well, you know, the politicians and the media are, are all on that, too. And even, even in how things are reported, you know, it's like, um, you know, 26 Palestinians died in an Israeli response to Palestinians. Like, the Palestinians shot a couple bottle rockets over the wall, right. like the newspaper. You know, but when really what they're saying is, you know, Israel sent targeted missiles in and killed 26 Palestinians today, but they don't ta they don't spin it like that in the newspaper. It's just, you know, a response to, uh, you know, Palestinian uprising. It could be because most of the people in the media are Zionists. Yeah. <laughs> that could have something to do with the reporting. Well, why is that, though? Because they're godless. It's a political organization. That's what it is. It's a political organization. David, do you have a question? No, just a comment that I guess I never really thought about it before, but it just—it just kind of struck me as odd that uh, circumcision was so great of a thing, but as an outward symbol that you know you're a Jew, but there were Jewish women, right? And there was no outward symbolism for them, you know. But I guess, and doesn't their lineage go through the mother like it was saying on the website? Yeah, isn't that weird that it, the mother determines it? Well, right. I don't, you know. But the circumcision was only for the men, and then it's saying, you know, circumcise your hearts, and only the men were physically circumcised. So it's just, I don't know what the point of all that is. just an interesting thought that mm -hmm. the men were to be physically circumcised, but mm. women were still Jews. And like you said with the Passover, you couldn't celebrate Passover if you weren't circumcised, but... We know Jewish women participated in the festival, so. <laughs> yeah. And he got this outward thing that's basically always covered up. Right. That's the other yeah. part, too. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're walking yeah. around, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did. Put your all right, all right, all right. Moving <laughs> on. Maybe we were wrong over there. All right, somebody, uh, <laughs> somebody sent this. It says, uh, 2,000 years ago, Paul said that every promise that God ever made is fulfilled in Christ. So Paul was not waiting for 1988. No, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> or he, he simply, he simply wasn't. Um, it says, so in the new covenant, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but the new man. How does that factor in? God bless. Well, the new man is simply the person who is in Christ. Mm -hmm. All right, that's the Christian. That's the new creation. That's that's who the new man is. Um, and it, it, that's what he says. It's not about male or female. He's not saying that these distinctions don't exist anymore. Okay, because obviously there's, oh, I don't know, in our culture, we've got to be careful what we say. <laughs> but still in my world, okay, there's men and there's women. You know, you still have Jews and you still have Gentiles. You know, you have slaves and you have free, but in Christ, none of that matters. Okay? In other words, a woman can worship Christ every bit as much as a man can worship Christ. A Jew can worship Christ. A Gentile can worship Christ. Those things don't matter in Christ. It's not like these distinctions are just gone. No, they're not gone. They're still there. That was at that time more specifically. Um, okay, a question here. Hi, David. This stuff is off topic from today's sermon. So answer me privately if you prefer. Do you practice baptism in the Lord's Supper? Thank you. Um, We've all been baptized. I, I think that, you know, right at this current time, I think the baptism whole thing was a spirit baptism. I think that's what was pushed. I don't think physical water baptism was ever a big deal, ever should have been a big deal. Uh, and as far as the Lord's Supper, we here at Berean have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And you say, why? 
And my answer is, because we want to. That's why we do it. We don't think it's a mandate. We don't think we're under some kind of law. We do it just to remember the fact, you know, we want to take a time every week when we stop doing all the stuff we're doing and just focus for a minute and realize Christ died for us. He paid our sin debt. We're part of this family. We sit at his table and remember that. So we do that. And we're not saying there's any biblical mandate. And I know people think, well, you shouldn't do it. Well, is it wrong? No, there's nothing wrong with it. See, we have freedom in Christ, okay? And, and so we do it there. But I, So I don't think either one are mandates you know, that we live by today. Dave? We had a similar comment on one of the YouTube videos about why we observe the, the pagan Sunday. Or Sunday. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I saw and, that. And I basically told him you know, that you know, in our view, the Sabbath has been and always will be the seventh day. But Christ is our Sabbath, and so we worship on Sunday strictly because we choose to, and for no other reason. That's what I mean. People out there will condemn you for whatever view you hold. Okay, yeah. someone's got something, you know. This and the person was cordial, you know, right? He was right. Like, he thanked me for explaining that, you know. But you know, there are yeah, what? people just. <laughs> 